thank you very much. And it's a, just a joy to be here. This is my first time in Scotland. And um, do I need an interpreter? <laughs> and uh, I'm sorry. Can you make that go up? Yeah. So, wow. How many of you are former students, like your alumni from Bethel School in Reading? Would you just stand, please, if you're alumni in here? Awesome. Thank you. Can you just bless these guys, please? Thank you, Jesus. Well, we're just going to have a really good time tonight. I'm already excited about what's happening here. And we were in uh, London and we did the, the European Leaders Advance. Were any of you there? Yeah. Well, yes, we've all left hell, right? <laughs> it was hot. It was the hottest day in 167 years in London. No air conditioning, of course. And, uh, and we preached inside this old building, and it was re- 2,000 people. And it was really hot. And uh, so then we went from there, and we went to France. And it was the hottest day in recorded history in France when I got there. <laughs> no air conditioning. And we did a conference with 1,500 people, and it was uh, awesome. Like the archbishop of the area of the Catholic Church came with about 20 priests, and we had Catholics just falling down on the ground with, with the Protestants, and it was unity of the faith. It was very beautiful. And then we went to Switzerland, where they assured me it's cool, and they had the hottest day in recorded history there. <laughs> it's a true story. No air conditioning. And then they said, and my friend, so we ministered there, and then we ministered in the Swiss Alps, and they said, oh, when you get to the Alps, Alps it will be cool. When we got to the Alps four days ago, it was the hottest day in history. No air conditioning. A thousand people came. And, uh, and I finally put my bed outside. I slept on outside, upstairs on the outside porch and put mattress outside. And so I haven't really slept in about four days. So, you know, old men don't dream dreams when they can't sleep. So, um, And then I came here and it, it's raining. I have never been so excited for rain in my entire life. I just laid down on the lawn and went, rain on me. Well, so good. So, um, well, thank you so much for having me here. And, and uh, I hope that you'll have me back <laughs> um, by faith. Um, so I want I, to give away a couple of books. We have a, a, I don't know what you call it, a stall? <laughs> a stall is where you, you go... The restroom. <laughs> Man, I, I thought the British messed up the English language, but you guys really didn't. Anyway, I have a sarcastic sense of humor. So I'm just testing your hearts. Um, this is called Spirit Wars, and it's about spiritual warfare. That's why it's called Spirit Wars. And uh, it's actually about my story. It's, um, it, it begins with my story. I was demonized for three and a half years. As a Christian, somebody once said, can a Christian have a demon? I don't know, but a demon can have a Christian, that's for sure. <laughs> anyway, okay, that didn't go over very well. <laughs> Give me a little extra grace. I've never been here before. Um, and this is uh, my journey out of uh, being demonized and how to get free and how to stay free. And um, so this is really good books, one of the best books I've ever read. And I, <laughs> I wrote it. <laughs> uh, would anybody like this book? 
somebody who's just demon possessed. <laughs> you are not demon possessed. Um, and this is called Fashion to Reign, Empowering Women to Fulfill Their Divine Destiny. And uh, this is about empowering women. So, um, yeah, I want to give this to somebody. Your husband's here and he's totally oppressing you. <laughs> How many of you know when God created Adam, he created him both male and female in the image of God who created him. He said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And how many of you understand that God created Adam, the word Adam is the word man in the Hebrew, and he created him male and female, and he made him in the image of God. How many of you know that God created Adam, both male and female, in the image of God? What I'm getting at is this. If you oppress women, you lose half the revelation of the nature of God because God is not a man. He's both male and female. <laughs> that went over good, too. <laughs> and when... Um, when Adam and Eve fell, it's interesting because you know that God cursed the serpent, he cursed the woman, and he cursed Adam. And when he cursed the serpent, the curse over the serpent was this. He said, you're going to crawl on your belly and eat dust. And he said, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And uh, you will bruise his heel and he will crush your head. And uh, it, the word enmity, uh, actually in Hebrew it means hostility. And I thought it was really interesting that the curse over the serpent is I will make the woman hostile with you. In other words, the curse over the serpent was the woman will hate you. Doesn't that, does that, does that tell us why almost all the spear point of spiritual warfare is towards women? And why every culture and every religion in every country in all of history figures out some way to oppress women? Because if you release women, they're the ones who are angry. They're the ones that are carrying this hostility towards evil. And if women get released into their proper place, you're going to see a whole new planet. A whole new day. And, uh, and actually, it's interesting. The Hebrew says this. She's going to stomp you so hard, or he is, speaking of Jesus, that he's going to bruise his heel. He's going to stomp your head so hard he's going to bruise his heel. So that's a good word right there. And this is a good book. And who would like this book? Okay, you can buy those over there. <laughs> Why don't you give this to somebody? And let's pray. Why don't you grab a hand? If you're single and you're sitting next to someone else who's single and opposite sex, and if you'd like to date them, just squeeze their hand. <laughs> My students know about this, and they have set very strategically. And if it's, if it's a yes that you'd like to date them, just squeeze back. <laughs> and if you're married, just show them the ring. <laughs> so Holy Spirit, we just thank you for what you're doing tonight, what you're going to do among us, and what you've already done in us and through us. And Lord, we pray that God, we, I just pray for a spirit of revelation to be in the room tonight. That we would see things we've never seen. We would hear things we've never heard. So that we can be people we've never been and do things we've never done before. God, I pray that you would enlighten us. That you would enlighten us. That you would, that you would build with light into our hearts. That you would actually enlighten us. 
In Jesus' name, amen. I, I want to uh, share a, a message that I, I've, it's probably my, it's, it's probably my life message. It is my life message. And it, it's actually, I wrote a book about this many years ago, I think nine years ago, called The Supernatural Ways of Royalty. And it actually came out of an experience I had. Um, and it just began with this, uh, with an encounter I had with my uh, personal assistant. And uh, her name's Nancy, and she worked for me for many years, about, I think, 10 years. And uh, it's kind of interesting because, uh, my personal assistant was also a prophetess. I don't know if you know what that's like, but it's kind of like, you're fine, how am I? You know, every morning. <laughs> and one morning I came to work and, um, and I came in the office and she would come in every morning and brief me. And she comes in the office and Nancy's a very sensitive person and she walks in and she looks really sad. And I said to her, are, are you okay? And she's tears running down her eyes. Yeah. No. I said, oh, did I do something to hurt your feelings? No. Yes. I said, what did I do? And then she, she said these words to me. She said, you don't realize how much people value you. And you don't carry yourself like you understand that people have a high value for you. And you come out of your office and you think you're being funny. But you're destroying the very people you're supposed to be leading with your words. And then I said, what did I say to you? And she, she told me something I'd said, which I thought I was being funny. And, um, and I asked her to forgive me, gave her a hug, and really it was over. It was a 10-minute encounter. It was over, and we interacted through the rest of the day. And She was happy, and I was happy, and everything was fine. And by the way, that encounter over 10 years was not uncommon for us. And so I went home that night, and honestly, the day was great. I didn't think a thing about it. Honestly, never. Th- I didn't even tell my wife about it. Didn't think twice about it. I went to bed that night, and I think around 1 or 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, I had a dream. Have you ever had a dream that when you wake up from the dream, you can't remember the dream, but the feeling of the, of the dream is still with you? I had a dream. I, I couldn't remember the dream, but I felt like I, felt like I just lost my best friend. And a verse, a part of a verse was running through my mind. The world cannot hold up under a slave when he becomes a king. Or a pauper when he becomes a king. And so I, I, I was half awake. I leaned to get up against my headboard. And I'm just trying to like, actually I'm trying to remember the dream. Like what happened? What was the dream about? And, and this, this overwhelming sense of grief was in my soul. And I had tears running down my eyes. And I, I couldn't figure out what was wrong. And this piece of this verse running through my mind, which I knew I hadn't read. I knew it was a proverb. I hadn't read Proverbs for a couple years. So I was like, what is going on? The world cannot hold up under a slave when he becomes a king. So a few minutes passed and I finally said to the Lord, are you speaking to me? And he said, yes, you're a slave. You're a pauper who's become a king and it's time for you to change. And immediately in a vision, I was taken back to that morning where Nancy said these words to me as I've repeated once already. You don't realize how much people value you. And you don't carry yourself like you understand that people value you and that you have value. And you're destroying the very people you're supposed to be leading with your words. And immediately the Lord said to me, he said, do you know why Moses had to be raised in Pharaoh's house? Now, how many of you know that story? You've read it in the Bible or you've seen the movie. That's the story of the king, the pharaoh, killing all the firstborn males and 
Moses' mother puts him in a basket, sends him down the Nile River. Remember the story? And the princess, the king's daughter, rescues Moses from the Nile River, and he is raised in the palace. Now, when the Lord said to me, do you know why Moses had to be raised in Pharaoh's house? I thought that was some kind of divine coincidence. I didn't think that God had much to do with anything of that story except for rescuing Moses. And he said, do you know why Moses had to be raised in Pharaoh's house? I said, no, but I bet you're going to tell me. He said, because a man who's in, who's in slavery internally cannot free people who are in slavery externally. So it was necessary for Moses to be raised as a prince so he can free my people. And then he said this to me, unlike Moses who was raised to be a prince, you were raised to be a slave. And immediately I was taken back into my childhood and I won't bore you with all the details, but I'll just give you a little bit so you can pick up the story. My father drowned when I was three years old. My mother had me out of wedlock and then my father drowned three years later. My mother remarried when I was five and my very first recollection of my stepfather who was a very, a very large man and he was a bodybuilder I think it was the first week my mother married him. I had grabbed a bunch of cookies, ran outside, and as I ran past him, he looked at me and he said, are you going to eat all those cookies? I said, yes, sir. He said, you better. And I got outside and I thought they were chocolate chip cookies, and instead they had raisins in them. And even then, I had great discernment, so I threw them away. (laughs) Raisins look like rabbit poop, you know I must have went back inside too soon to have eaten that many cookies. And he said to me, did you eat those cookies? I said, yes, sir. He said, you're lying to me. He took my pants off and pulled my underwear off. And he commenced to beat me with the buckle of his belt. And blood ran down my legs. And my my mother was pulling him off me. He was holding me upside down and just beating me. And my mother pulled him off of me. And that scene repeated itself over and over. And he used to say to me, you're the trash that came with the treasure. A marriage your mother didn't marry you. Your job is to be seen and not heard. So my mother married, was married to him for eight years, and it was like that for eight years. For eight years, I was intentionally, proactively taught, you are not valuable. No one cares about you. You're the trash that came with the treasure. Don't forget it. My mother divorced him and when I was 15, when I was 13, and when I was 15, she remarried another very violent man and and that whole process continued, breaking out windows, tearing all, almost every door in our house had holes in it or was broken off the hinges. He used to wake me up in the morning with throwing a gallon of water on me because he said that I didn't wake up when my mother called me. So that's how I got woke up every morning. And my name was Stupid Ass. Wouldn't call me by my name, call me Stupid Ass. And I got saved when I was 18 years old. And obviously, I spent a lot of years wanting to kill two of my stepfathers. I'm whom my mother is still married to my second one, and we have a very good relationship, and he knows Jesus now. So that's a great redemption story. But I grew up very wounded, and then I got saved. And, this, and, and the kind of crazy thing is, I got saved in the Jesus movement, which was very wonderful. It was kind of the, if you will, the best and worst of times, because we had a great encounters and bad teaching. All of us are older know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm not sure that very many of the Jesus people actually knew the Bible, but they loved God. And so I learned, actually I learned the supernatural before I actually learned much about the Bible. And we were moving supernaturally before I actually figured out it was in the Bible. But I was, I was raised in a culture that believed that feeling bad about yourself was actually spiritual. 
And so I went from, if you will, from the pot into the fire because I was raised in a spiritual culture that demeaned themselves in the name of Jesus being exalted. And so here I was back in bed in the morning that night, very early in the morning, two, three o'clock in the morning. And the Lord said to me, it's time for you to change because you're a slave who's become a king. And you're killing the very people I've called you to lead. And it's time for you to change. Now, I don't know how this works, you know. I, I, I don't know what our theology is here. I don't even actually know what mine is. I write books I don't agree with every chapter later on, so. <laughs> I'd say my theology is in process. Uh, but, you know, I don't know how predestination works and, you know, how free will works. I don't actually know how that works. I mean, I, I, mean, I know how everyone thinks it works. I, I know what I wrote. <laughs> but I don't know actually how it works. Like, how does God sovereignly take you someplace and still give you a free will? I don't know. But I do know this. When God says you're going to change, it doesn't feel like you have a choice. Do you know what I mean? It's like the heart of the king's in the hand of the Lord and like water he turns it whatever whatever way he wishes and I don't know how that works. And when the Lord said to me that night, it's time for you to change. I understand I have a free will, but it didn't feel like it. And for the next year, everywhere I looked, the Lord began to talk to me about my true identity. And he began to tell me, you were born to be amazing. You were born for glory. You were made in my image. And I could, honestly, in that season, I could take my Bible, I could throw it on the ground, and it would open to, I've written your name on the palms of my hands. <laughs> I couldn't get away from it. I know everyone that's, that preaches here knows exactly what I mean. It's, like, it's almost like there was nothing else in the Bible. I couldn't find Jesus, I mean, Judas hung himself. I couldn't find it. It disappeared from my Bible. <laughs> now I'm exaggerating to make a point. And at that time, when I had that experience that night, I happened to just be reading through the, book, through, the, through the Bible, and I was in the book of Genesis. I just mean, consequently, I just happened to be there. And I was reading that, that, that night and, that, and, the, and the days following, I was reading about Jacob. You remember Jacob in the Bible? I was reading the story about Jacob, and I actually liked the, 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 the character Jacob because I connected to him. His father didn't like him. His brother didn't like him. You know, his mother loved him. You know, your mother always loves you. You can be a drug addict. Your mother's like, he's practicing to be a pharmacist. <laughs> right? Your mother always loves you, no matter what. It doesn't actually count. You get an F on your report card, she's like, they just don't know how to train a genius down at that school. <laughs> so I, I just, so I really connected to Jacob. I always have connected to Jacob. And and his father named him Jacob. And by the way, if you're not Hebrew, don't worry about it. But the name Jacob in Hebrew means liar or cheater or deceiver. I mean, you know, when your dad names you liar, it's not usually positive. I know because my dad called me stupid ass. And I don't think he was talking about the donkey. I think he's talking about me. And so I began to connect in that season with the story of Jacob. And Jacob goes down to this well, as you well know. And he, no, that didn't mean that on purpose. That's pretty cool. I should write it that way. <laughs> he went down to the well and he meets this woman named Rachel. Is that right? Rachel, yeah. Rachel. Sorry. I get names mixed up. 
I call my grandkids by different names. And I say, if you don't answer, you're not getting the inheritance. (laughs) Ella, come here. I'm Misha. You're Ella now. (laughs) And so he meets Rachel at this well and he likes her. He's like, whoa, dude, I got to marry this girl. So he ends up connecting with her father, and her her father's name, Leban. And what Jacob doesn't know is that Leban is the only person on the planet that's more deceptive than Jacob. And he says to Jacob, listen, you want to marry my daughter? You can work for seven years, and I'll give her to you. So Jacob works for seven years, and they have this big wedding, and he goes in the bridal chamber, and he wakes up in the morning, and Leah, her older sister Leah, is in his bed. Now, I don't know why it took him all night to figure that out. That's just one of the mysteries of the Bible. And he comes running out of the honeymoon suite, the the bridal chambers, they called it in the the Old Testament. And he says to Levin, did I not work seven years for Rachel? He said, yeah, well, that looks like Leah to me. He says, oh, I forgot to tell you, we always marry the oldest off first. So like, well, you had seven years to tell me that. He says, oh, don't worry about it. You know, um, you can have Rachel on credit. And you can work, you can have her tonight and work seven more years. So Jacob works 14 years for his father-in-law, who's incredibly deceptive. And finally, he's just really sick of it. And he tells his father-in-law, I'm leaving, I'm taking my stuff. But his father-in-law is a really smart Jewish businessman. And he knows that Jacob is making him rich. So he says to Jacob, I'll give you a signing bonus if you stay. This is kind of Chris Valentin, unauthorized version of the Bible. It's Genesis (laughs) 30-ish. I'll give you a sign. If you stay, I'll give you a signing bonus. I will pay you whatever you want. And Jacob says to him, you've changed my wage 10 times. What difference does it make? What agreement we make? You never keep your word. He says, no, no, you name your wage. I'll pay it. He said, all right, I'll work for all the spotted and speckled sheep and goats. Sheep and goats. I have no idea why it has no S on sheep. <laughs> sheep and goats. If they're solid color, they're yours. If they're spotted and speckled, they're mine. And I'm sure that Levin thinks, well, Jacob's stupid. But he says, okay, you have my word. That's your deal. And then Jacob goes down to the watering hole, and he does the strangest thing, one of the strangest things in the Bible. How many of you know this story? He goes down to the watering hole where the sheep and goats mate. And when the strong sheep and goats are mating, he takes branches, and he carves spots and speckles in them, and he puts it in front of the strong goats and sheep when they mate at the watering hole. And you know what happens? Whatever they see when they're at the watering hole, that's what they reproduce. And consequently, all the strong sheep and goats are all spotted and speckled. And all the weak goats, the one dragging a leg, got a bad eye. They're all leavens. And Jacob becomes incredibly wealthy. And one day, in the midst of this story, in the midst of this time in my life, I'm reading this story and I realize that this is not a lesson in agriculture. That God... (laughs) That God is actually teaching us how his sheep, how many of you are sheep? How his sheep reproduce. You don't reproduce what you want to reproduce. So you reproduce what you see. How many of you know the watering hole? Ladies, they would go down to the watering hole because they didn't have mirrors in those days. And they would look in the watering hole to see the reflection of themselves. How many of you know that you you do not reproduce what you want to reproduce? But you reproduce what you see at the watering hole at your imagination. Because as a man thinks, so is he. 
Did you get that? So there's two ways to live. You can spend your life trying to not be like the people who hurt you. You can react to what you don't want to be. Or you can respond to the vision God has given you for your life. Here's the problem. To, re- to react, when you react to what you don't want to be, you have to keep in mind what it is you don't want to be. And here's the problem. Whatever you see at the watering hole of your imagination, that's what you become. You don't become what you want to become. You become what you imagine. See, you even became what God imagined. You were a manifestation of his imagination because you were made in his image what he imagined you became and his likeness. And I realized that night that I have become like the very people I hated. How many know that unforgiveness tethers you to your past? And it undermines your divine destiny. Because in order to not be like my fathers who hated me, I had to keep in mind what it was I hated about them. And I was reproducing the very people I couldn't stand. You know, I, I've, when, when I first came to Bethel for the first three years, I was our main counselor and I counseled eight people a day, four days a week. And I, I never counseled a child molester. I didn't, who wasn't themselves molested. Now, there's probably some that are, but I never counseled one. And somewhere, usually in the first session, they would say something like this. I swore I'd never be like my father, my cousin, my brother, my uncle, whoever molested them. I swore I'd never be with like them. I hated them. And I've become like the very person I hated so you reproduce what you see at the watering hole of your imagination. Somebody once said, you are not what you think you are. And you are not what others think you are. But you become what you think others think you are. John Maxwell, you guys ever had John Maxwell in your country? Awesome teacher. John Maxwell said, that's not really true. He said, you're not what you think you are, and you're not what others think you are, but you become what you think the most important person in your life thinks you are. Now, how many know that that's especially true if the most important person in your life is God? So you're not what you think you are, and you're not what others think you are, but you become what you think God thinks of you. Here's the problem. If what you think God thinks of you is not what God thinks of you, then you're not becoming what God thinks. You're becoming what you think he thinks, which isn't what he thinks. And therefore, instead of becoming a manifestation of his imagination, you're actually becoming a manifestation of your imagination because what you think he thinks isn't what he thinks. And now you know why you have to be transformed because your mind's deformed. And when it gets reformed into the image of God, then you become transformed because you see him just as he is. And when you see him as he is, then you begin to see yourself as you are because you're actually a manifestation of God himself because you were made in his image and his likeness. I went on reading the story of Jacob, and finally Jacob does leave. In the 32nd chapter of Genesis, Jacob leaves, and he's incredibly rich. He's miserable, but he's rich. And how many of you know it's a lot better to be miserable and rich than miserable and poor, because at least you can go shopping. 
That's somewhere in the Bible. <laughs> Proverbs 32. And he leaves, and he's not having a good life. His, his father hates him. His brother can't stand him. His father-in-law can't stand him now. His wife, they don't like each other. And most of the time, they don't like him. And, and, and so he's just, he's incredibly rich, and he's incredibly miserable. So he leaves, and they all leave with all of his flocks, and all of his, all of his shepherds, and all of his herdsmen, and his wives, and all their children. And he, they, they, they cross the plains, and, and it, it, Jacob says to his wives and servants, Listen, you guys go on to this next city. I'm going to go over, and I'm going to get my life together, and I'll, I'll meet you. I'll be back. And so he goes over to this city called Jabbok. Jabbok. The name Jabbok means empty and alone. Anyone ever visited there? Anyone ever born there? And he prays and he asks God for help. And God sends him an angel to help him. Now you know you're having a bad life when the angel that's sent to help you, he don't like you either. (laughs) And the Bible says that he wrestled the angel all night. You remember the story? And finally, the angel says, let me go. My shift is over. And Jacob says, I'm not letting you go to me. Bless me. The angel breaks his leg. And Jacob hangs on. And finally, some time later, the angel finally says, what is your name? What is your name? He said, my name is Jacob. Hebrew for deceiver. Liar. And the angel said, no longer shall your name be Jacob, but your name shall be Israel. Israel means a prince with God. I like this part. And Jacob goes, and what is your name? And the angel says, that's none of your dang business. <laughs> I always wonder why the angel wouldn't tell Jacob who he was. You know, I mean, you remember when uh, Daniel had an angel? Michael, the archangel, visits Daniel. And, and you remember Zacharias, Gabriel visits him. So Jacob's like, what is your name? The angel says, none of your business. And then one day I, I read where Paul said in 2 Corinthians, do you not know you'll be judging angels? And I realized there's a man dragging a leg in heaven and there's an angel. <laughs> I'm going to ask you an honest question. If you wrestle with an angel all night long, he broke your dang leg. Would you let him go just because he called you by a nickname? I'll be getting me some stuff. You know what I mean? A new chariot, a nice house, a new wife. Not me. I don't need a wife, but Jacob had issues. In fact, I will be married 40 years, July 19th of this year. Yes, I'm a martyr. I mean, would you let the angel go just because he called you by a nickname? I mean, think about this. This guy's wrestling all night long for something. He's got something in mind. And when an angel calls him by a new name, he lets the angel go. Would you let an angel go if you wrestled all night for a blessing? Would you let him go just because he called you by a name? You would if you realized that sticks and stones will break your bones, but names will take away your future. And Jacob realized he couldn't change because his identity was in his name, which meant a liar. And when the angel said, you're no longer Jacob, your name is Israel, you shall be a prince with God. He became a father of a nation. What's in a name? How many of you know that Eve could not 
bear children to her name was, I'm sorry, woman couldn't bear children to her name was changed to Eve, the father of the living. Abram to Abraham, the father of a multitude. Saul to Paul, Cephas to Peter. I'm just saying, there's something in a name. And how many know when Adam named the animals, he didn't call them Spot, Fifi, and Trigger? (laughs) That when Adam was naming the animals, he was co-creating with God. It says that God brought the living creatures and whatever Adam named him, that was its name. In other words, he he was giving them their DNA. He was actually saying to the lion, this is who you are. And he was co-creating with God because when God created the animals, he was silent. So Adam was able to speak because God was silent. I'm saying there's something about a name. I have eight grandchildren. And my oldest is a granddaughter. She's now 17. And I have a 16-year-old grandson. My oldest granddaughter is named Misha. And my grandson's named Elijah. And we went to Marine World, this amusement park, and we took five of our grandkids, and Misha and Elijah stayed in our room together. And I think they were like nine and ten. And at the time, you know, Misha was just a little peanut, and Elijah was like the man, but he's a year younger. And they were watching a documentary on reptiles. You guys get National Geographic here? I know you do. And, And... And they were watching this whole documentary. We were in this really cheap hotel room where the, the, the TV is bigger than the bed. You know what I'm saying? It's like Motel Five and a Half. I'll have this big screen TV and the bed's like two feet from the, from the screen. And they're sitting on the edge of the bed and they're watching the crocodiles and the lizards and the snakes. And finally it gets over and it's like 10 o'clock at night and we're getting ready for bed. And Misha says to Elijah, let's wrestle. He's like, all right. She said, I'm a crocodile and you're a lizard. He said, all right. And they jump up on top of the king-sized bed. And she says, I'm a crocodile and you're a lizard. He said, all right. So he goes, and he grabs her and he throws her on the bed and jumps on top of her. And she goes, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. He lets her up and well, why not? Because you're the lizard. I'm a crocodile. He goes, well, what do lizards do? She goes, lizards go. (laughs) He goes, all right. So they face off and she goes, and he goes. And she grabs him and she throws him on the bed and she jumps on top of him. His little head sticking out here and he's like, at first he's like really into it. Like, <laughs> and you know, he could just throw her right off. But every time he moves, she goes, you can't do that. You're a lizard. <laughs> Seriously, he's under there for five minutes. And at first he's like, after a little while, he's like. Then I hear this little, and I am dying laughing. I'm, I'm in the bathroom in the corner. I'm watching him. I'm like, oh my goodness, she outsmarted him again. <laughs> After about five minutes, I hear, Papa. I go, yeah. He goes, Papa, I don't want to play anymore. I don't want to be the lizard. <laughs> I thought about it. You know, this is like the devil. He becomes the mighty crocodile, and we become the lizard. And we say things to let everyone know we're the lizard. We'll say, well, brother. 
I don't know. I guess all we can do is pray in tongues. I mean, do you ever just say to yourself, I don't, I don't want to play anymore. I don't want to be the lizard. <laughs> you know, the greatest lie in Christendom, in my opinion, is that you are a sinner saved by grace. That's not true. You were a sinner. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were, which means we must not be. <laughs> Christ died for us. While we were sinners. And it's important, before I move on, that we never forget that we were once sinners. That's how you have patience for people who still are. Is that you remember you were and you didn't do anything to fix you. He did. But when you received Christ, you became a new creation. And all things passed away and all things became new. How many understand you became a new creation? Not a new spirit. You became a whole new creation. And there's two words for the Greek word, for the word new in the Greek. One means like you've got a new car. It's new to you. It's new. The other means prototype. Never before created. This word, new creation, it means prototype. You're a creature that has never before been created. When God died, when Jesus died for you on the cross, he didn't fix you. He killed you and made a new creature out of you. And you became a creature that has never graced the planet before. You are seated in heavenly places. You have his nature. You have the mind of Christ, the heart of God, and the power of the Spirit. You're the only creature ever made in his image, in his likeness. You can fly to the ends of all the universe. You'll never find anyone like you because you're the only one who's been told, be imitators of God as beloved children. You know why he told you to imitate God? Because you were made in his image and in his likeness. And when you act like God, you're being yourself. That's the truth. That's the truth. Well, brother. Well, brother. I don't want to steal God's glory. You can't steal it. He gave it to you. John 17, part of the prayer that Jesus prayed before he was crucified on the cross. He said, Father, the glory you gave me, I want to give to them. The glory you gave me, I want to give to them that they might be one. Did Jesus ever pray a prayer the Father didn't answer? The answer to that is no. It's not a trick question. (laughs) In other words, you can't steal the glory because it was given to you. In fact, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die because you sinned. He died because you fell short of the glory. And what was he doing on the cross? He was restoring you back to the glory that you were rich in original design. Okay. (laughs) You're not a sinner anymore. In fact, if you are a sinner, then two-thirds of the New Testament wasn't written to you. Because it's written to the saints at Ephesus. The saints at Colosh, the saints at Philippi. If you're not a saint, you don't even part, you don't no sense reading that part of the Bible. Because it's written to saints, not sinners. Gospels written to sinners. Epistles written to saints. Saint means holy believer. You can't be a sinner and a saint at the same time. (laughs) 
That's a good word. Don't worry about it. Brought my own encouragement. <laughs> Second Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. That we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. How many know Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Then, then two chapters later, he said, you're the light of the world. He said, I'm the, I'm the righteousness of God. Then he said, you're the righteousness of God. Then he said, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Anybody ever quote Romans 8, 28? All things work together for good. You ever quote that when, when things are really bad? Right? Like all things work together for good in the end. So if it's not good, it's not the end. That's right. Have you ever wondered why all things work together for good? Because it says, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Next verse says, For whom he foreknew, he predestined. And whom he predestined, he called. And whom he called, he justified. And what's the end? Whom he justified, he what? Glorified. Why does everything work together for good? Because you were born for glory. Some of you have to live a long time to get there. But you were predestined. He knew you. He predestined you. He called you. He justified you. And he glorified you. He glorified you. When, uh, you know, do you remember Jesus? (laughs) When Jesus walked the earth, he had 12 disciples that were close to him. Do you remember what... They argued about every time he got 30 yards from him. It says they all argued about what? Who's the greatest? Do you know every single gospel writer records that phrase that they all argued about who's the greatest? Can you imagine getting 12 friends together and leaving them in a room alone? How many of you think they would all argue about who's the greatest? I'm not saying you wouldn't have a couple, you know, competitive personalities. But they all argued about who's the greatest. Do you know that? Do you remember that the argument got so bad that Peter and John, Peter and, I'm sorry, James and John got their mother involved? <laughs> and their mother said, can my son sit at your left and right hand in the kingdom? And James and John had just asked them that three chapters earlier. When, when Jesus said, it's not, your, not mine to give you, they got their mother involved. <laughs> and, Jesus, and it says this, the Bible says this, when the other disciples heard their mother asking Jesus, about if their sons consider in the left and right hand. It says they were indignant. You know why they're indignant? Because they didn't think about getting their mother involved. <laughs> you know the gospel of John is the only gospel that tells, that calls John the disciple whom Jesus loved? And he wrote it. <laughs> yeah. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all call John, John. <laughs> when John wrote his gospel, he writes, and the disciple whom Jesus loved. Let's see. What's a good name for me? The disciple whom Jesus loved. Do you know the gospel of John is the only gospel that tells you that when Peter and John ran to the tomb, it's the only gospel that tells you who got there first? John. Yeah, and John's the one that said, if all the miracles that Jesus did were written down, the books himself, the earth itself could not contain the books. So he's concerned about how much he writes and how important it is. And then he writes, and John got there first. I wrote on my side of my Bible, who cares? 
well, this is really important to know. John got there first. <laughs> Certainly everyone would want to know, well, if they were running, who got there first? Well, John got there first. <laughs> you know I have a point, right? Because I'll always make you laugh before I stab you. <laughs> I'd like to suggest that when you get close to Jesus, that you begin to know who you are. There's something about seeing him. In fact, Paul captured it perfectly when he said, when you look at Jesus, it's like looking in a mirror. And when you see him, just like he is, you become like him. There's something about hanging around with Jesus that makes you know that you were created to be awesome. And the truth is, you knew it when you were little. Someone has to, see, it takes about 12 years of bad religion to convince you that thinking bad about yourself is somehow spiritual. Because when you were little, you knew you were born to rock. My grandkids, I love to tell stories about my grandkids. Two of my grandkids were in the front room. It was Elijah that I told you about a little while ago. And Isaac, his cousin, and they're one year apart. And I, I think they were smaller. I think they were eight and seven. And Elijah said, let's fight. And Isaac said, all right. And Elijah said, I'm Spider-Man. Hits him with the web. And Isaac said, I I want to be a Spider-Man. He said, you cannot. You can be Superman. He said, all right, I'll be the Superman. There they were, two superheroes. Then Riley walked in. Riley is Elijah's little sister. And she looks like a blonde Brillo pad, like cousin it. Like her hair is over her eyes. You have to push her hair back to see where she's going. And she walks in the front room while they're wrestling. And she says, I want to play. I want to play. I want to be the Spider-Man. And Elijah says in his most authoritative voice, you cannot be Spider-Man. I'm just Spider-Man. Just then I walk by and she looks at me and she says, Papa. I said, yeah. She says, they're not playing fair. They're not chairing. <laughs> Tears running down her, out of her hair. <laughs> I pick her up. I said, what's wrong? She says, they're not playing fair. They're not chairing. I want to be the Spider-Man. They won't let me. So why don't you be Wonder Woman? Wonder Woman can whip Spider-Man any day. How many of you married men understand these spiritual truths? She said, all right, I'll be the Wonder Woman. I let her down in the front room, and there they were, three superheroes. I walked away, and I had this thought. None of them were asking who can be the garbage man. Nobody's asking who could be a loser. You take little kids. I've been to Africa. I've been all over poor, poor countries. Not all the poorest countries, but I've been in poor countries where kids got nothing. And the poorest kids, they want to be Superman. They want to be Spider-Man. They want to be the princess. They want to be something awesome. There's something about being childlike again that you realize that you were born to be amazing. And when you get older, you grow out of that and you start to think that like, not liking yourself, thinking bad about yourself is somehow spiritual. And I would like to say it's stupid it's not spiritual. It's stupid. It's the spirit of stupid. And stupid should be painful. <laughs> you call me stupid and you just said I had glory. I, I didn't say you were stupid. I said you're acting stupid. One time I was doing this prophetic training. This is many years ago. 
in this church, and I, it's a, it was a, a very large church. I only knew the senior pastor. And I was just a training with about 40 students, and I was training for five days. And, and uh, the first five minutes, we were sitting at this long table on both sides of the table, this long table, kind of like the Last Supper, but we were sitting on both sides of the table. And, and I, <laughs> you guys got it. It took a second. And I'm sitting at the end of the table, and I, and I think, and I'm supposed to do this prophetic training, and I think, well, before I teach them how to prophesy, I should teach them why. So I made this statement. I said, this is your mission if you should receive it. <laughs> mission impossible. That you would find the gold in the middle of the dirt of people's lives. That's your job. This is, we're looking for gold. We're not looking for dirt. You're like, you, know, you go in a gold mine, you find more dirt than gold, right? But Jesus bought all the dirt so he could have the treasure in the middle. So I said, this is your job, that you'd find the gold in the middle of the dirt of people's lives and show it to them. Then I made this statement. And as I make this statement, a man walks through the back door and comes and sits down at the other end of the end of the table. I said that your job is to find the greatness inside of every person, both Christian and pre-Christian. And this guy comes in, and I I have taught now four minutes. I'm going to teach for five days. This man comes in, sits down, at that statement, and raise his hand. I said, sir, do you have a question? He said, yeah, I believe God is great. Uh-oh! Does your brain talk to you? This is how my brain talks to me. And I know when God's talking to me, because he sounds like my wife. <laughs> so this man asked a question. I believe, sir, you have a question? Yes, I believe God is great. a question be careful whoa, even a wise man whoa even a fool's wise when he shuts up i said sir did i say something that made you think that god isn't great he said you said we're to find greatness in every person both christian and pre-christian i said oh yeah i said that he said well i believe that you're developing doctrine in my students that creates that that releases arrogance and pride in them careful you don't know who this man is be careful (laughs) and i said well i believe that the church has emasculated and castrated people in the name of humility and it's killing us and all the students simultaneously went And there was this beautiful painting on the wall. We were in the, actually in the pastor's lounge. There's a beautiful landscape painting. I said, see that painting? He said, yes. I said, let's pretend you're the artist. You painted that. He said, I, said, you're the, he said, I get it. Yes. I said, that's the stupidest painting I've ever seen. What an ugly painting. Yuck, that's an ugly painting. He looked at me like, showdown, 12 o'clock high. <laughs> I said, did demeaning the painting glorify the artist? He said, no. I said, you didn't paint you. God was the artist, and Jesus was the model, and you were the painting. Every time you think bad about you, you're talking about the artist and the model. You are insulting the God who made you in his image and his likeness. You can't have a thought in your mind that demeans you and glorifies God. He said, I have three doctorates in theology and i never heard that before i said you should come to school supernatural ministry 
When Jesus died on the cross, they put him in a grave. And they covered him. John, this is John 20. They covered Jesus with two cloths. One covered the head, loincloth, and one covered the body. And when Peter and John ran to the tomb, and John got there first, <laughs> Peter ran in. And he saw the cloth that was once over the face of Jesus folded up and put in another place. And the cloth that once covered the body still laying where the body once laid. You know why? Because when Jesus rose from the dead, the head was revealed. But the body has yet to be revealed. And let me read you Romans 8, 28. We're almost done. Hope you're not bored. Let me read you this. For we, for all who are being led by the Spirit, these are also the sons. These are the sons of God. You have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Daddy, Abba, Father. For the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children of God, then we must also be heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, if indeed we've suffered with him, so also we may be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for what? The revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, because him who subjected it, that in, in hope that creation itself would be set free from slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory, what? Of the glory of the children of God. For we know that all creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. Not only this, but we ourselves having been the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. Do you know, you, you know part of what this says? This says that creation knows who you are. The devil, he knows who you are. God knows who you are. The angels know who you are. It's only you who don't know who you are. And creation is groaning. You know why? For you to be revealed. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, the head was revealed. But the body has yet to be revealed. And God wants the glorious children of God to be revealed. So that creation can be set free from slavery to corruption, into the glory of the children of God. Do you know that when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die for humans? He said, preach this gospel to every living creature. Why? Because the curse over the serpent I told you about, the curse over the woman was that you're going to be, you're going to have shame in childbirth and your husband will rule you. By the way, that was a curse. The curse over Adam you're going to till the ground, but it's going to yield thorns and thistles. That was a curse over creation. And how many of you know when Jesus died on the cross, he had a crown of thorns? You know why he had a crown of thorns? Because he took the curse over creation to the cross. And no longer is creation supposed to think with a curse. 
you are not doing anyone a favor by thinking bad about yourself. You are insulting your creator. And the devil loves it because you are postponing creation being released from corruption. Because you were born to be amazing. You are God's most beautiful creation. You say, well, I don't want to be arrogant. No, no, no. He made you this way. And the difference, you know, how many know that humility isn't thinking less of yourself? It's just thinking of yourself less. And feeling bad about yourself still makes you the center of attention, doesn't it? Because you're thinking of yourself. But when you start saying what God says about you, you start thinking what God thinks about you, how many understand now you are emanating the manifestation of his imagination instead of yours? Because God thinks good of you and God didn't die for trash. In fact, the value Sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross determined the value of the people he purchased. There was no possible way that he would have gave his son for junk. That's how my stepfathers think. That's not how your Abba father thinks. And I want to tell you this. Jesus said, love your neighbor as, as, that that word as that's a big word as you love yourself you know if you don't love you you can't love them do you know the best thing you could do for your neighbor is love you because you will never love anyone more than you love you and you will not let anyone love you more than you love yourself and when people try to love you more than you love yourself you'll sabotage the relationship and that includes god and God gave you the love that you need to love yourself with. But if you don't allow yourself to, if you don't allow you to love you, you won't love anyone else. In fact, Paul's great counsel to husbands about their marriages is, Husband, love your wives as you love yourself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. So husbands ought to love the, their wives as they love themselves. How many know Husbands, if you don't love you, you won't love her. You know why my fathers hated me? You know why? Because they didn't like them. It took me 30 years to realize it had nothing to do with me. It had nothing to do with me being stupid. It had nothing to do with me being bad. It had nothing to do with me. It was just that they didn't like themselves. So how could they like anyone else? What I was seeing on the outside is what they were experiencing on the inside. They hated themselves, and therefore, they couldn't love anyone else. The best thing you can do for your neighbors, for your friends, for your wives, for your husbands, is to actually love you. Because if someone tries to love you more than you love you, you start to build a case against them. And you know what happens if you take a pauper, a slave, and you put him in a palace? See, in the United States... Homeless people became a big political issue. And we, so in the, in, the, in the 70s, we built government housing for the homeless people. And we gave the houses for free to all our homeless people. You know what happened? They became the worst ghettos in our nation. You know why? 
Because if you take a slave and you put them in an environment that's better on the outside than it is on the inside, they will reduce the environment on the outside to the environment they have on the inside. But you know what happens if you take a prince and you put him in a, and you put him in a prison? Yeah, that's right. We've already thought about it. It's Joseph. He'll make the prison a palace. You know why? Because you always create the environment around you that you have within you. We have a school ministry, as you well know. We have 2,100 students we graduated this last year. I spend the first three to four months teaching this, the students who they are. You know why? Because as soon as you know who you are, then you start, to, you start to take the environment around you and make it like the environment in you. And I can tell you, like, I say the same thing. I'm a genius at repeating the same stories over and over with different characters. And I, and I watch their eyes, and I've been doing this for 17 years. And I say, you're amazing, and I have 150 different ways to say it. And our students that are here know this. And I tell them different stories, and I use different verses to say, you're amazing. And I say, you're amazing, first week. And they're like, oh, yeah, thank good work. Yes, thank you. They don't have it yet. Second week, you're amazing. Third week, you're amazing. Fourth week, you rock. Fifth week, you're amazing. Sixth week, you're born for glory. Seventh week, you're amazing. And I keep sharing that message. And I can tell the day it hits them. And it's like a wave. I don't know if you guys do this in your stadiums. It's like a wave. It just starts to sweep. And sometimes it takes a little longer for some than others. And when they get it, something happens. I can, I can feel it, and I can see it in their eyes, and you would be able to see it if you were on stage with me. Like something switches inside of them. And suddenly they go. It, gets from this, it gets, makes this 18-inch journey from here to here. And they go, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Is my daddy. Oh. Oh my God. Is my daddy. Wait a second. God is my daddy. What do you mean? You mean God? Is my daddy. You mean God who made everything? Is my daddy and he lives inside of me. Oh my God. Is my daddy. <laughs> I'm, something, I'm not kidding you. Like, I think they could leave after three months and probably 75% of what they need to know, they've learned because they've got it when it makes it from here and their heart goes, oh my God, oh my God, I'm a child of the king. I am royalty. I'm actually, I'm an heir to the throne. That's who I am? How come nobody told me that? (laughs) And all of a sudden, it starts to click. And the next thing that happens over the next couple weeks, they go, hey, If that's who I am, then how do I behave? Because I was trained to be a pauper. How do noble people behave? How do royal people behave? And they begin to like, just, they just begin to be like sponges. Like, tell me how to behave in the palace. And about the last three months, they start to go, wait a second. If God is my daddy, where's my power? Where's my authority? I should, wait a second. If the God who's made everything is inside of me, how come I'm not ruling? I was born to rule. Yes, that's why it says, make disciples of all nations, not just in all nations. Oh my God, I'm supposed to be in charge of the world. 
Yeah. You're supposed to lead in a way that causes everyone else to rise. You're supposed to lead in a way that serves the world into its destiny. Oh my God. Oh my God. That's who I am. Yeah, that's who you are. And something awakens in them. And people wonder, like, what do they do down there at Bethel? They teach them how to heal the sick. We teach that too. They teach them how to prophesy. We do that too. I know, but do they have a oh my God moment? Because until they do, they're just doing stuff. But when they realize who they are, then they're like, this stuff is who I am. It's not what I do. This is who I am. I'm in charge because I am an heir to the throne. I'm actually seated on the throne of David because that's the throne Jesus sits on. That's who I am. Oh, my God. And they walk around for the next three weeks. Oh, my God. Well, they say it differently. Oh, my God. That's the Mexican people. (laughs) The Asian's like, oh, my God. (laughs) The Scottish people. (laughs) I don't think I could do it yet. (laughs) I have to be here a few more days. I can only do William Wallace. Men don't follow titles. They follow courage. That's who you are, you know. If you will lead them, they will follow. It's true. It's true. They will follow. It's true. Oh, my God. I'm a child of the king. Yeah, that's right. I believe it. I read Chrissy's book. He's right about this. It's kind of my Mexican, Spanish, Italian, and Asian all mixed together to sound Scottish. But it's true. It is who you are. And I know tonight, if this is the first time you heard this message, it's probably not. You probably heard it from your pastors. But if it's the first time you're like, oh, that makes me feel so good. But you don't get it. I'm not insulting you. You just don't get it. Because it takes... A few months to get from here to here. And when it does, you wake up one day and you're like, oh my God. Well, I don't know how you say it in Scottish, you know. Oh my God. (laughs) I'm a leader. Didn't even know it. Something awakens in you. And you realize you've been lied to your whole life. Because the accuser is accusing you day and night. And he does not want you to know who you are. Because once you do, creation gets released from corruption and that planet begins to shift. And nothing can stop you because you're, you're fighting from victory, not for victory. Would you stand? Would you put your hand on your heart, please? I love that Paul was so insightful. He, he actually prayed for the eyes of our heart to be enlightened, not the ones in our head. It's 
From the heart man believes, not the head. And we all know it starts typically, typically most often starts from the head. I understand that it can be an experience your head doesn't get, but typically it starts from the head. But how many understand it has to make its way, his journey down that 18 inches, and when it does, you're going to have an aha experience. And Holy Spirit, I pray that tonight that you would, that you would do us all a favor, and that glory, which one word I think means weight, it would sink down into our hearts quickly. And in the next few days, we would begin to awake with this aha moment in our hearts. And we began to realize that we were actually born to be amazing. Adam messed it up in the beginning, but you restored us to a higher place. That we were never born to be sinners. We messed that up. We were born to be saints. And Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you would give us a revelation. That you would awaken us to the truth, and the truth would make us free. Lord, I pray against every powerless thought. How many of you understand that, er, that every time you have a thought in your mind that isn't in his, that it needs to be cast out? That You're like, well, I feel powerless. It's not true. I feel hopeless. It's not true. It's not true. The truth is that all things worked out together for good for you because you love God and he has your destiny in hand and he's actually predetermined that your life would end in glory. He's predetermined. You can't mess this up. This is the part that you don't have a will over. This is his sovereign part that everything in your life ends for glory. If you had a setback, watch out because here comes the comeback. And it's like a bow, uh, like an archer pulling back a bow. You're like, I've had a setback. And, and well, watch out, because the further you pull that bow back, the more velocity the arrow has. And it is true that some things will only be, will only make sense in eternity. It is true. That's true. But you have to trust that the God who knows everything set glory in motion in your life. You were created for glory. You were created to rule it's the very first, the, very, the second command in the Bible. Be fruitful and multiply and rule the earth. And you rule servants, as we all know. Lord, I bless this people with a spirit of revelation and the knowledge of God. And I thank you for what you're doing in them. In Jesus' name. And everybody say, I receive that for myself. I that for myself. Amen. Thank you very much. Thank you.